Well, church, I'd ask you to join me in the letter of James, chapter 4. If you'd like to turn that way on your phone or in your copy of God's Word, we will begin in verse 1 as we continue to march through this incredibly, this incredibly practical book. Uh, I mentioned to the group who meets here on Wednesday nights uh, as, we're, as we're going through James that you know, we've tried to provide a number of different resources to help make the most of our time in James, our men's group that meets on, on Saturdays once a month. You know, we have these little scripture journals that, that we're using to write down notes as we're independently reading through James and trying to let it percolate and sink down into our, into our souls a little bit. And then, of course, the Trenton Family Guides that we produce on the back of the, the bulletins. We're trying to provide all these resources, and it occurred to me that perhaps I should have given another resource Maybe I should have given like a list of good dentists in the area because James just have a, has a way of like kicking us in the teeth, right? And, and that joke went over better on Wednesday night. But the reality is it's an incredibly practical book. I don't know if you've noticed, but the, it's like a snowball effect just continues to, to compound and to compress. James continues to impress on us that, that it's, it's the content of our hearts that God looks at. It's not just the outward actions that we, that we perform. God is most interested in the, in the content of our hearts, but the reality is the content of our hearts always spills over. Spills over into like the three W's, our works, our words, and our wisdom, what we think is wise. It's a bit like a, like a snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger as the Lord continues to do His work through James. Today we're talking about fights. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a, of a fight or some kind of conflict or some kind of strife. It's interesting in our culture, the way that our culture thinks about fights. If you've ever been near a fight, like an actual fist fight, or a knockdown drag out or something like that. I'm sad to say that when I was in high school, one occurred at my high school. And what I noticed, I was not a part of it, by the way. But what I noticed was that as soon as it began to break out, everyone gathered around because they wanted to see. They wanted to know. They wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to get a piece of the action. I, I looked up a, a few statistics and I found that any given UFC fight on TV, which I think a lot of it's pay-per-view, but... Something like one to two million people tune in to watch these people in cages just go at one another with these mixed martial arts and things like that. WWE, 11 million people tune in to watch people pretend to fight. <laughs> it's amazing. And then a different kind of fight or, or some kind of battle, I guess. A, a recent presidential debate, which is not a fist fight, although sometimes they can seem kind of like fights, but certainly a, a conflict and an, an exchange between two opposing sides. 80 million people tune in. Our culture is, is agreed on something, and that's that fights are fun to watch, but they're never fun to be a part of. The scriptures give us an answer today about how we should think about quarrels, strife, conflict. We are to be a fundamentally peaceful, and if you remember last week in James, peaceful and peaceable, right? God gives inner peace, and then out of that inner peace, an outward peacemaking characteristic is cultivated in the hearts of, of genuine believers. We are to be a fundamentally peaceful and peaceable people. Why? Because God has made peace between us and Him. And out of that vertical reality, 
of God reconciling us to Him through the blood of the cross, we are to live lives of peacemaking with other people. Out of the reconciliation God purchased for us, we are to work for reconciliation with others. If the Bible is anything, it is a book about peacemaking. It is a book about reconciliation. I'd ask you to read. We're only going to consider three verses today in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then I might venture into verse 4 because it's, it's connected to the next section. It says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? Or strife, enmity, it being an enemy with God? Let's pray together. Father, as we wade into the waters of James once again, we're confronted with the reality that, that James does not mince words. I pray that I would not either. And I pray that what we expose from the text today as we seek to do this expository ministry, just to expose what is there, that you by your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts so that we could live like Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. I wonder if you see what, what James is saying here. He's, he's continuing this same thread that he's been on for quite a while now. The content of your heart spills over. There's no way to keep what's inside of your heart only inside of your heart. When the world squeezes you, whatever is inside is going to come out one way or another. It will either come out in your works. Remember, he says, those who have been truly changed by God will evidence that by, by changed life. Or maybe it'll come out in your words. Those who have been changed by Christ should evidence a change in, in our speech, right? Words are just the heart made audible, we said a couple of weeks ago. Or perhaps the content of your heart will spill over into, into your idea of what is wise. And that's what we considered last week. What is the wisdom of God? What does it look like? Well, those who have been changed of God have a new standard, a new scorecard for wisdom. And now we see in chapter 4, the content of our heart will spill over into our interactions with others. And many times the passions, the, the desires of our heart cause quarrels and cause conflicts. There's no way to keep what's in your heart only in your heart. It will spill over. But James gives us a pattern for how we should deal with this because all of us, each of us, have these Genesis 3 hearts, right? These broken hearts that are, that are turned away from God from birth and, and God, of course, turns us back to Him, but, but we still wrestle with the residue, with the leftover stuff of the old nature and the old flesh. So, so James gives us a prescription here, just like a good doctor might and he tells us what it is that's at the root of our conflicts. What it is that's at the root 
of our quarrels. And so I've entitled this sermon, It's Not You, It's Me. It's not you, it's me. We're tempted to believe that the cause, the genesis, the root of our problems are outside of us. It's some other person, it's some other situation, it's some other event. But really, when we get down to the root of it, much of the cause of our quarrels and our conflicts are due to what's inside of us. To have a little play on a good historical phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us. Let's read this in verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So, So when James is considering our fights and our quarrels, notice what he does. He lays the blame not at the feet of our enemies, but at the feet of us. He says, is it not this? It's a rhetorical question. And the the answer to this rhetorical question is yes. Is it not this? Is this not where your quarrels and your fights come from? That you have disordered desires left over from Genesis 3. You have a Jeremiah 17 heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust it? The Bible says in Jeremiah 17. Is it not that? That you have a heart that, that is full of disordered desires. And out of those disordered desires, sometimes when the world squeezes you, those things come out. And they cause strife. He says, in effect, the trick that the devil wants to convince you of is that the problem is outside of you. Because if you're looking for the problem to be outside of you, it's possible that you'll never find the solution. Satan wants you to think that you're in the situation you're in because of somebody else when really the problem has been inside of us. It's been inside of me all along. Consider the word passions. You know, whenever the New Testament uses the word passions, it's not usually in a good light. You think about what passions are. We think of the word passions differently, right? If you have an employee at your job who's passionate, it's usually a good thing. Everyone wants parents to be passionate about their kids, right? That's a good quality, to be passionate. But the picture that the New Testament gives of this word, of passions is always a negative, there's always a negative connotation. There's always a negative light cast on the word passions. It's almost like the the rising and falling of the sea. If you're a boat out on the sea and, and the storm is brewing, you're just led astray by the passions. And wherever your passions are leading you, whichever way the wind is blowing, whichever way the waves are, are swelling, you will be led away by that instead of by instead of being led by the Spirit. We can either be led by the Spirit of God or led by the passions that, that, are, that are innate to us, that, that exist in us, that we are born with. Passions are, are not seen as a good thing here. Think about how 2 Peter considers the word passions. In, in 2 Peter, the same word is translated pleasure, but it will become clear in a moment. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 2. But these, he's talking about certain people, but these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. You can think of an animal. Animal doesn't reason through things. An animal just responds to whatever synapses are firing across their brain at the right, right? An instinct occurs and an animal reacts and they're led by passions. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it 
pleasure. They count it passion. To revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So, these are hard words, but the point is this. Every quarrel, every fight, every piece of strife, it arises from a set of disordered desires that were not there in the Garden of Eden before sin and that will not be there in the new heavens and the new earth one day when we are finally saved to Jesus. Praise God and Lord haste the day when we can be free of these disordered desires that exist in our hearts. Lord haste the day. When these desires are not taken to Christ and are not submitted to Him, they spill over. So here's a word of application. Study yourself. Let's study ourselves. Which passions are most at home in your heart? And you probably know them. Which ones, which ones are most comfortable living inside of your heart? If we don't recognize that each of us has passions, and some of them are different for different folks, right? Perhaps you've been in the presence of someone who's been led by the passion of anger. Perhaps you grew up with that kind of person and you, you bear the scars of living in a household of a, of a person who is led by the passion of anger. Or maybe you've experienced the fallout of someone who's been led astray by the passion of lust. Some other passion. If we don't recognize that each of us has passions and if we don't identify which ones we are more given to, which ones have more, have more stake in our hearts, we will be ruled by them. We will be mastered by them. Here's a two-part little suggestion and application. Don't look first to outside problems. Friends, it may be. It may be that you're in the middle of a situation that is totally not your fault. That could be the case. But James seems to say that that should not be your first reaction, to think I'm the victim. Don't look first to outside problems, other people, other situations, other circumstances. First look inward to self. Assume that there's some part, however small, assume that there's some part, however small, that you can fix by letting Jesus fix you. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because after all, at the end of the day, you have a lot more control over you than you do over other people or other circumstances or other situations. So assume that there's, that there's some work that God needs to do in you if you find yourself in the middle of a conflict, in the middle of strife. And then secondly, I would say this. You know how hard it is for you. So be patient with fellow sinners as they are walking the same difficult road that you are. Be patient with fellow sinners. When you see someone else, when the world squeezes them and a little bit of that stuff in their heart that's not so great, that's really more Genesis 3 than it is Romans 8, when, when you see the world squeeze someone else and, 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 and the bad stuff comes out, be patient with them because after all, you are no better than they. Can we find a parallel teaching in Jesus? Of course we can, right? Because we've seen time and time again in James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James seems to, seems to teach many of the same things that Jesus teaches with his own words. Listen to Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Here's the, here's the point. We are masters at noticing the sins of other people. And we are masters at minimizing the sins of ourselves. And this is what Jesus says. Consider that what is in your eye is bigger than what is in your brother's or your neighbor's eye. So here's an application. Here's a suggestion that arises from James and from Jesus in Matthew 7. Our default setting... Home base, right? Factory setting, out of the box. Our factory setting should be, should be to think of our own sin as bigger. That's why we rehearse that we, we desire to be a gospel-centered people. We desire to be a people here who say, I am the worst sinner that I know. We can say with Paul, I am the chief of all sinners. So why should we do this? Because at least this way, at least this way, we will err on the side of repentance. We will err on the side of running to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm messed up. Would you change me? Jesus, I'm messed up. Would you, would you, would you do your work in my heart? Lord, I, I wake up every morning. I'm tempted to think of my situation this way, but I don't know if that's right because I know me and sometimes I don't get things right. So Lord, would you, would you take my heart and would you, would you put it like clay in the potter's hand and would you help me to see my life the way that you see my life and situation? Secondly, the second point is this, and I probably didn't even mention to you the first point. The first point is where fights come from. And that was everything that I've said up to now. The second point is this. The second point is this. Intentions lead to actions. Look what it says in the next verse, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You desire and do not have, so you murder. So there's these intentions in my heart. I, there's something that I want, and I can't get it, and so I, I, I decide to get it through some kind of sinful means. Or there's something that I want, and I don't have it, so I fight and quarrel. Really? My, my, my conflicts are just the spillover of the unresolved things in my own soul. Sin often comes from the frustration of not getting what we want. In 2012, I had the honor of, of um, taking a class, a seminary, with, with Heath Lambert, who was the one time, he's now the pastor of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, but at that time he was the president uh, or actually, he was about to be the president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and he said this, I remember it sitting there in the class. An idol, if you want to know what an idol is, an idol is someone that is something, an idol is something that you will sin to get or sin if you find that you can't get it. You'll either sin in order to get this thing or you'll sin out of the anger that you can't have it. The man who doesn't feel acknowledged at work will demand respect at home. Be overbearing, abusive to his wife perhaps, and ugly to his kids. Or the woman who doesn't feel treasured by her husband will take this as a license to seek being treasured by someone else perhaps. An idol is something that you will sin to get or sin if you can't get. James chapter 1 reminds us of this just a couple of chapters ago. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what's the remedy? 
What's the remedy? So far we've had a lot of bad news. Gospel is supposed to be good news, right? The good news is this. Is that everything that you think you need that you're trying to find somewhere else, Jesus has it in full measure. So whatever you're trying to find elsewhere, instead, find it in Christ. Find your security in Christ so that you won't look for it in political leaders, so that you won't look for it in a rising 401k, or so that you won't look for it in a good crop year or a relationship. Find your security instead in Christ, where moth and rust cannot destroy. Find your, find your identity in Christ. If you find your identity in Christ and, and, and you understand what is, what is most true of you is what Christ has done for you. If you find your identity in Christ, you won't look for it in an accomplishment or in another degree or in a profession or a, or a title or some honor or some kind of vision of yourself that you expected to have. You're 35 or you're 40 and you expected to be at a different place and, and, and it, didn't just, it just didn't happen. And so your identity is crushed because your identity isn't found in Christ. Find your satisfaction, your contentment in Christ so that you won't look for it in people or things. So that you won't be keeping up with the Joneses because you have everything you need in Jesus. Find your contentment, your satisfaction in Him. And lastly, find your salvation in Christ so that you won't look for it in your works. Find your goodness. Find your sufficiency. Find your enoughness. Find everything that you need in Christ so that you won't look for it in self your record or a false gospel or your own works. We have to be vigilant, church. We have to stand guard at the, at the gate of our heart so that no rebel intentions begin to move us and crop up and yield its bitter fruit. We are who we are on the inside. While the world says it's okay to think it and feel it so long as you don't act on it, believers know that our heart is what matters to God. Listen to Proverbs 4. Above all else, guard your heart. That word guard, you see that? Keep guard. It's the same word, same word in Hebrew that God told Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, keep the garden. Guard the garden, right? It's the same word he told the Levites when they were to keep and to guard the temple. And now he tells us, keep, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Our heart is foundational. It is at the root. 2 Corinthians 10 says this. How do we do this? How do we guard our heart? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, every little piece of untruth that, that wants to gain access into our hearts. We shoot it down. We destroy these arguments that are raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, these thoughts come in. They are anti-gospel thoughts. They're not true. They're, they're false. We put them in a prison cell and we say, you stay in your place. Because you are not right. Guard our hearts by taking every thought captive. And then lastly, thirdly, our wisdom played out. This is where we see what happens when our wisdom is played out. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, we probably need to pick up halfway through verse 2. Right where it says, you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This, this is connected with James' with James's comments on wisdom, the sermon that we considered last 
Sunday, the passage that we, that we considered last Sunday. Who is wise and who is understanding among you? Let him by his good conduct show the meekness of wisdom. What James seems to be saying here, and remember from James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, what, what seems to be communicated here is you can, you can either recognize that God's way is best and His wisdom is best, or you can be given over to what you think is best and what you think is right. And trying to, trying to live our lives based on our own wisdom, friends, is not going to go so well. It's not going to work out. You can either ask God in humility for His wisdom and His perspective, or you can be left to your own wisdom in scare quotes there. Proverbs 14, 12 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. As the old saying goes, the mind can justify whatever the heart desires. Our task will be, as we walk in this difficult road, to submit our desires and our hearts to God so that we won't be tempted to try to justify the content of it. We would instead, instead repent of it. We wake up and say, God, this is what I think is good. This is what I want. But would you today give me a sense of what you think is good and what you want? It's, a, it's an act of doing Romans 12 when it says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and, and pleasing and perfect. Here's a final word, friends, and this is really the good news. For those who are in Christ, one day there will be no strife. For those who are hidden in Christ, for those who have by faith laid hold of the promises of the cross, for those who have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus, for those who have, who have received Christ, who have repented of their sins and turned away, one day all fighting, all strife, all friction, all tension, every quarrel will cease. And it will be no more. I want to ask you to turn. I know I don't do this often to ask you to jump around in the Bible, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. If you do that. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah is right about in the dead middle of your Bible. And friends, this passage is so meaningful, especially in light of Easter that we're going to consider next week. And I would encourage you to return tonight as we look at Passover. It's just amazing how Passover in our study of Exodus, Passover, we're going to be talking about tonight at 6 p.m. And then next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I'd ask you to read along with me. As it speaks about Christ. There shall come forth a shoot, right? A little, a little sprig, a, a new leaf. 
from the stump of Jesse. You can think about how God has judged Israel. He's cut the tree down. And all that remains of Israel is a stump. But what's going to happen? There shall come forth a shoot from that stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. wonder who he's talking about. Who's going to come from the line of Israel? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what, he, by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen to this, beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, there is coming a day when the knowledge of God will so cover the world when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is God, that the things that we think are so important will seem vastly insignificant in the light of His glory and grace. And we will no longer war. And we will no longer fight. And we will no longer have strife. Why? Because we have seen in full the vision of who God is. One day this will happen. One day the truth will win. One day the Lord will settle the accounts. One day a full and lasting peace will be ushered in for all those who know Christ. How serious is God about peacemaking? He himself took on flesh so that the worst kind of enmity, the worst kind of conflict the worst kind of strife that existed between God and man could be ended. He is the peacemaking God. And for those who have embraced this truth, for those who have had this truth grip their hearts, there is not only now peace with God as we walk through this life, but there is the hope that one day we will have a full and lasting peace. And I'll end with this, reading from Revelation 21. Listen to these sweet words and praise God that one day this will be the case. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Would you pray with me?
God, we are gathered here today because You are the peacemaking God. You have made peace between us and the Father. Jesus has made peace between us and the Father by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room today who has never come to to You and said, said, Lord, I need to be made at peace with You. I I don't need to be Your enemy anymore. I, I, I need for You to take my badness and give me Your goodness. Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross. If there's anyone in this room or or maybe even overflow or or watching at home or or whatever the case may be, I pray that, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would say, I need to be made at peace with God once and for all. Lord, I pray that wherever there is strife, wherever there is enmity, wherever there is friction or fights or quarrels, that you would settle them because you give us a small vision of ourselves and a big vision of the gospel. I pray that our concerns and our passions and our disordered desires would take a back seat to your glory and that your glory would be so important to us that we would do everything that we can to live at peace with one another with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors, and that we would tell others about how they can be made at peace with God because you are the reconciling God. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.